Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Grid. I'm Jennifer Shahadi, and today I have a very exciting guest, four-time World Poker Tour champion, Darren Elias. And today he's going to talk to me about a hand with Ace-8 suited. This is actually a first on The Grid, as he brings us a hand from a very scary opponent, Floboris. <laughs> this is the AI developed by Carnegie Mellon and Facebook to play six-mac no limit hold'em against some of the best players in the world, including Darren. And they did come out on top. Um, an incredible story, but today we're gonna get some insight into one specific hand that hopefully will give you um, some ideas about how scary this AI really was. Darren, welcome to the show. Hi, Jen. Uh, happy to be here and uh, excited to talk about this hand. I think it's cool, the whole grid concept here. And uh, yeah, we're ready to get into it and talk about playing against this AI. So in this particular hand, I read about how there was actually two different formats that you played in. In one case, it was you and um, four other top professionals and one version of Plurbor... Plurbor sorry, I keep mispronouncing this. Plurbis. Plurbis. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in, one, in one instance, it was you playing with four other top professionals and one AI. Uh-huh. And then you also had you playing against five different copies of Plurbis, which sounds absolutely terrifying. For the audience yeah. members, imagine going to the WPT and having five Darren Eliases. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, um, maybe we'll give Brian Altman a, a chair as well. Yeah, get Brian in there. Yeah, this came from the, the first section of where I was playing five copies of Pluribus. And I actually did most of my work with the project in, in that format. I didn't play much in the, uh, the, the version with other human players. So I was, um, I was involved kind of early on, troubleshoot some of the initial flaws or leaks that Pluribus had when I first started playing and I was doing that through this format where I would play against five copies and uh, it was kind of started out losing a lot and then was learning and getting better pretty quickly um, to the point where it was break even and then and then winning. And so I, I noticed that in the format with five humans there was a financial incentive the better you did the more money you got out of the, the pot. What was your financial incentive to do as well as you could against Pluribus? Um, it was something similar where I was paid around um, a dollar per hand based on uh, my performance. And uh, if I won, I won a little more money. And if I lost, I lost a little uh, less money. But it was, it was mostly based on a number of hands I was playing. Right. So, And I mean, I know that you have a lot of intrinsic motivation. So because I've played... You in a very low stake sit and go once as we were, were preparing for the shark cage. And it felt like you wanted to win that just as much as you wanted to win a WPT. 
Yeah, I have trouble kind of like turning it off and playing for fun. Like even when we play um, home games with the neighbors and it's like ten dollar rebuys, I'm um I'm still playing my best, which is kind of embarrassing, I guess. But um, I'm always gonna kind of bring my best when, when I play. I don't I don't really play casually uh, for fun. And another player who's a lot like that is Vanessa Selp. So I guess good company. Yeah, yeah. So definitely. competitive. <laughs> yeah. In this particular instance, you had Ace Eight suited and. At what point in the process was this? Was this kind of early on or in the middle? I think this was kind of towards the end where Pluribus had um, done almost, it might have reached its like final version or final form where um, it's playing about as good as it could. So this is towards the end. In the beginning, this would have been pretty trivial, just hero call the bot down because in the beginning it was bluffing entirely too much with crazy frequencies. So um, at this point it had kind of, played itself enough where it figured out better frequencies and which hands to use. Um, so at this point, the the hand was a little more difficult because it was playing better. All right, well, let's get into the hand. Tell us the action. I opened in the cutoff with Ace-8 of clubs and Pluribus defended the big blind. The flop came 8-7-3, rainbow with no clubs. Pluribus checked and I bet the pot. Pluribus raised to, I believe, about two and a half X. He put in a check raise, and I called. Was that like a preflop you you min raised? Um, mm-hmm. Was that just the standard for the the process? There were no annies, by the way, right? So this was a no annie yeah. game. In no annie, um, no annie hundred big blind poker. I think you want to min raise from most positions. I was using min raise from every position but the button, and I was raising a little bigger on the button. I think like two point two X, and uh. Pluribus did something similar, although it would mix in these um, low-frequency big opens, which is kind of something interesting, where every once in a while it would open to 4x, um, but most of the time it would min-open or raise a little bigger on the button. And did you get to, if you like lost a big pot, would you auto-reload? So you always had 100 BB? Yeah, the way the, uh, the, way the software worked, everybody had um, 100 BBs every hand. Ah, okay, got it. There's no way out of it, kind of. The software was a bit, I guess, slow and clunky at first, but they kind of worked on it and made it better as the experiments uh, as the experiments went on. So the flop action, you bet um, 50, 100, you raised to 200, Pluribus called, and then you bet 450 into 450, and mm-hmm. you made it um, 1125, right? Well, it made it 1125. <laughs> it made it 1125, correct, yeah. So at that point, did, did you have a decision here or was it just an obvious call? Um, I guess there's a decision between calling and three betting. Um, I think most of the time I call here, but you could make a case for three betting because um, we should have the best hand a high percentage of the time here. And um, Pluribus is not like a human, I think, probably plays a, a lot more polar in Pluribus's spot where um, it's raising sets and uh, two pair hands and bluffs and there's not much in the middle where Pluribus is going to raise a bit more linear um, for value and it, it also mixes in a lot of these backdoor pair with a backdoor flush draw, pair with a backdoor straight draw, kind of like mixes in a lot of these hands as raises. And um, those hands don't really like dealing with a three bet. So it is worth thinking about three betting the flop. But um, I chose to call and I think most of the time I would call. Yeah, so you had the ace eight suited, and just because the hand is so complex, I think it's okay to maybe give away what Pluribus had right now. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. He had the um, the five seven offsuit here, so um, that would be middle pair with backdoor straight draw. And um, interesting that 
as you kind of learn more about pluribus and how it operates, that it really makes um, like hard differentiations in suits and how it plays different hands at different suits. So interestingly, that it says that with this hand, it it flats five seven suited five seven of diamonds and never raises, but with five seven offsuit, it plays this mix where it it calls sometimes and it raises sometimes. So that's interesting, and especially. As um, we think, oh, the backdoor flush draw is a stronger hand, and it's just calling with this hand instead of raising. It's interesting how it it differentiates, and uh, the suits really make a big difference um, for pluribus. That's interesting because it reminds me of like when I first started using solvers, and like there would sometimes be doing something different with different suits, and I literally it was so difficult to understand. I thought it was a bug. <laughs> so, uh-huh. Yeah, that's kind of one of the first things you see, and um. They solvers care a lot about the suits, and it's it's pretty advanced play that a lot of humans kind of haven't worked into their game yet. I think the elite players all do it, but on the World Poker Tour or something, I, I don't think a lot of regulars are, are factoring the suits in as as much as um, some of these some of these solvers are. So the seven five of diamonds that was a high frequency call, right? Yeah, but all of the five sevens um, that have a backdoor flush draw were a, were pure call for pluribus. Which I'm not, I'm not sure if that's that's optimal or best, but that's how it was playing. And then it said with this hand, five seven offsuit, it calls seventy seven percent of the time and raises the other twenty three percent of the time. So I actually ran into kind of a low frequency raise here on the flop, and that's kind of that was really one of the toughest things playing pluribus is it plays so so mixed on all streets. So pre flop, flop, turn, it, it has all these mixed strategies, mixed sizings, and when you end up getting to the river, there's still so many possibilities because it could have you could have run into a low frequency play on some street, and it kind of it has a hand that you're not expecting to see. If you had to describe this play in human terms, how would you make sense of it? Like, why is it okay or good to check raise with um, seven five here? Um, I think you get some protection um, on your, your you rate to have the best hand a, a good amount of the time with eight seven three. Um, you pair of sevens here. And with the uh, backdoor straight draw, there are some turns and rivers you can continue betting on and kind of turning your hand into a bluff on the turn and river and uh, putting your opponent into a tough spot, which is kind of what he did to me here, or it did to me here. Right. And um, the turn was a four, right? Mm-hmm. The turn was a four of hearts, so brings backdoor hearts, and um, Pluribus continued betting the pot. So I think that's about 2,700. This is one of the turns that... I expected it to continue betting on, um, and I have to, if we're talking about bluffs that I think it could have, which is kind of how where my thought process is going on the turn, 5-6, which was open-ended, gets there, uh, but there's still a lot of these 6-9, 6-8, 6-7 type hands, um, jack-10, jack-9, maybe hand like ace-9 suited, something like that. There's there's still enough bluffs, I think, that I I have to continue here. Interestingly enough, the team told me the bot would have folded against itself on the turn. So that's the bot thinks I should have folded on the turn, although I chose to to call the pot size bet and continue. Wow, that's surprising. Okay, so the bot thinks you should fold top pair, top kicker already to the full size pot on the turn, even though the pluribus is known as being a maniac. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, I don't necessarily agree that I should fold, but um, I think it's worth weighing too. Uh, again whether or not raising uh, raising here is a viable play. Even when he's bluffing, his his range does have good equity against me here when he has the... I don't really like giving him another card here when he has the open-ender or 30% equity here. 
Now, the thing is, I noticed that sometimes when you're working with AIs and they suggest doing something, it's because of like other stuff from earlier in the hand. Like maybe they um, three bet the flop more so you don't have as many strong hands in the turn and that's why they fold to the pot size bet. Is anything like that going on when it recommends you fold on the turn? Yeah, it, it probably doesn't have a completely accurate picture of how I'm playing because it's used to playing against itself. And um, it probably three bets the flop with more hands than I do. So I guess it, it would discount a lot of hands I have on the turn that I got there by calling that it would have three bet on the flop. So that might be part of the parts of the machine that kind of think I should fold there because my range might look a little weaker than it is. Right, because they're not they're still just trying to play as best as they can against itself. It's not trying to adjust to Darren Elias. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's learned by just playing itself and it's assuming it's playing itself. It does react to my sizings and reacts to what I do, but it's not it's not learning from my play per se. And it's not reacting to to your timing tells, right? Like you can think as long as you want. Yeah, yeah, you can uh you can think whatever you want. You can immediately it, it was it was weird playing online and just like immediately going all in on the river when you had a good hand that's something that you don't really do much when you play online for real money against humans that was kind of interesting to be able to just insta all in on the river which is kind of funny i mean it already did well enough like if it was allowed to start programming for timing tells (laughs) that would be pretty terrifying so you did call the pot size bet on the four i did i called the four and um nine of clubs came on the river i think he what does he have left about five or six thousand i think he shoves all in on the river and I ended up folding here. I really did not like the nine. I thought it was a little concerning with all of the um, like combo straight draws, um, hands like nine ten, jack nine, jack ten. Those all get there. Five six, it still got there. So really, the only bluffs I'm beating at this point are these hands that he had. These six eight, six seven, five seven, pair with a backdoor straight draw. And then he has a couple like low frequency hands like ace nine and um I think it checks sometimes when it has like pocket eights and, and eight nine, which is interesting. Again, something you wouldn't really expect. But I guess I'm not used to seeing these types of lines too much where where people kind of go nuts with the uh middle pair straight draw combo. So it is tough to react when you when you see this. And in retrospect, yeah, I think I would go back and, and probably call this one. But Pluribus snuck one by me here. I know that uh, these uh, AIs are also very famous for getting really nice value bets on the river. What would you think that Pluribus would be um, value betting here that would be like the weakest possible hand they might value bet? Would they do that with like a a 9-6 or something like that? Um, I think it it would be checking 9-6 here. I I don't think it goes quite that thin. Um, Interesting though that it does raise ace-8 on the flop. It says um, a lot of the times only... Only if it has the ace of clubs, but it does raise ace-8. Um, so I think that hand would shut down, too. Because Pluribus himself, he, it has to itself, it has to be worried about the 9 a little bit, too. And I don't think this is a spot where it's going to go super thin for value. But um, probably the thinnest value hands we're going to see are something like 9-10, jack-9, queen-9. If it has, I think it rarely has queen-9 and king-9. Hands like that are probably the weakest it'll be shoving for value. It's funny that you mention ace-8, actually. So you're saying that ace-8 with the clubs, it would have raised on the flop because that's the one that doesn't have a backdoor, right? Exactly, yeah. It wants to unblock the backdoor flush draw so that we continue with the backdoor flush draw and it gets value from 
from that ace jack of uh ace jack of diamonds or whatever it wants to get value from from those types of hands and uh it makes a very clear cut in its strategy between having it and not having it so at what point like after you make this fold um at what point do you get to find out that your fold was wrong well the team was nice enough where i would play a session like 500 hands or something i would play the whole session i would take notes and kind of write down uh interesting hands i was curious about and then uh Usually that day at night, I would email the team, um, oh, I was curious about these hands, um, can you tell me anything? And kind of the next day, I would get the uh, I would get the bad news or good news sometimes. But it's tough because it's not like a binary thing where, oh, I messed up or, oh, I, I did the wrong thing. Because everything is so mixed and all these strategies are mixed where you're kind of seeing that, yes, it bluffed this time, but it doesn't do it every time. And it thinks you should have folded as well. So it's it's kind of... You get mixed messages from Pluribus, even when you find out what it what it does. Oh, right. That's true. I mean, I actually thought you should have folded the turn, right? Yeah. And it's not like a live tournament where you can say, like, I should have been able to read into something. It's so much different than playing live where um, a lot of guys are not balanced and not mixing. So um, your decisions are much more um, binary, yes or no, this guy's bluffing or he's not, where it wasn't really like that at all with Pluribus. What was that feeling like playing online knowing that you could get kind of annoyed or frustrated if like you got a bad streak of luck, but your opponents were completely immune to that. Was that at all difficult? Yeah, definitely. That's something I I picked up on when I was losing that it was definitely more frustrating than losing to another human because you're playing this kind of like cold, emotionless. There is no like connection between you and the opponent. Even when you're playing online, you kind of feel a bit of a with timing or how someone's playing like there is a human element and um, they're not just a machine playing the probabilities and the frequencies where when you're losing to that kind of opponent, um, it feels a little helpless sometimes. I mean, I guess there's the developers who are probably watching and want their babies to do well. <laughs> yeah, I guess I could um, I could take find the human element in that. But it's interesting that those guys, they're not even poker players. So when we're, when we're trying to fix leaks or talk about the strategy, they'll say, oh, Pluribus does this. Um, we don't know why. Can you tell us why? So it's not like they understand everything it does. They're just kind of rooting for it to win. Right. Yeah, I guess it's difficult for them to understand. Um, but probably they, they picked up on a lot by the end. Yeah. What was the number one thing that you incorporated into your game after playing Pluribus for so many hands? I, I guess the mixing would be the, the, the biggest takeaway, like how many decisions are mixed compared to Going in, there's certain scenarios where I would think like, oh, you definitely need to randomize this situation a little bit. Like the small blind limps in and you have a crap hand in the big blind. You want to raise sometimes, you want to check sometimes. That makes sense. That's obvious. Oh, randomize this decision so you're raising the right percentage. But like some of these other spots on the on the turn and river or where we're mixing 30% sizing with pot bed sizing and even in river spots where it it calls sometimes and it folds sometimes. That That's something that um, was kind of a novel idea to me, to use that much um, randomizing and mixing on later streets. Did you actually like find spots with your play after that you used that more and it made you better? Yeah, I have. But it, it for me, it comes up really more often when I play against elite players or other very good players who, who train with solvers. I don't really... When I'm playing these WPT tournaments or playing against rec players, I don't really think um, I need to be rolling a die on the river if I'm going to hero call or not. I think I can kind of psychologically assess the situation better 
um, understanding with exploitative play, I guess, understanding what my opponent's doing rather than uh, leaving it up to chance. Prior to this, had you done a lot of work with solvers or was it more like your introduction into the AI? Um, I've done some work with PO. I mean, I'll be the first to tell you, uh, I've done embarrassingly little work compared to the guys who regulars on the 100Ks and 250Ks, guys like that. I've done a fraction of the work they've done. But yeah, I, I have played with it and um, looked at some things. When I look at that stuff, I try to make bigger takeaways and like themes and, and big concepts of why it's doing with things with groups of hands and and how it how it reacts to things. Where I'm not trying to memorize um, hands or frequencies or things like that. I'm I'm trying to get bigger bigger takeaways, I guess. Do you feel that you notice something different between the way that Po plays and Pluribus, like? What major differences did you see? They're both very aggressive, and um, I, I guess it depends what in, what inputs you give it or what options you give it. Pluribus had this 2x pot sizing that it would use kind of frequently on the turn, um, and that's something I, I don't... Most of the time, people aren't putting in the 2x pot sizing as an option for PO. Usually, though, it'll be 1x or 1.2x or something on the turn. Um, so it's interesting that Pluribus would use this a lot, especially um, in spots where you check back the flop or where it believes you're capped. It would use this 2x pot sizing on the turn and in some spots with some hands that I didn't really expect. So that's that's something that it did that I incorporated a little bit, but not something that comes up super frequently in live tournaments. That's interesting. So did Pluribus kind of like chunk its betting as, uh, in the same way that, it, you know, Apayo you know, mm-hmm. used by a top professional will probably have a few bet sizes on the turn, maybe a little bit more on the river. But overall, like, would Pluribus also seem to use the same sizes again and again? Yeah, it would It would get to a spot and it would um, it would say, uh, it's going to bet half the pot, um, X percentage, pot, X percentage, 2X pot, X percentage. And then it would mix, uh, mixing all of its range into these different baskets of sizings, which is kind of like what made it tough to play against is that you couldn't really pin it down to a hand because it's all mixed pretty well and there's also something to be said too for playing against a machine compared to playing against a human who's trying to emulate a machine pluribus is actually a computer mixing it perfectly when a human who's studying a solver tries to do this they they have to um a know the exact spot and what how to randomize the situation and b execute it perfectly in game um in 30 seconds which i think is a a tougher task than a lot of people think where, um, they, Oh, I'll study with a solver and, and get way better very easily. Um, I think it's a, a massive endeavor to kind of randomize your play properly in all these spots. And it, it takes a lot of hard work. And as you mentioned earlier, like looking for themes and verbal analysis, not just trying to memorize something that is like so incredibly vast. There's so many different situations to memorize everything is, is not the route to go. It's just to kind of find these bigger takeaways. And some of them, um, I think I w- I, I've arrived at intuitively already. Other ones, I, I don't know if I ever would have arrived at. So it is helpful to, to kind of get these takeaways from, uh, from PO Solver and these solvers, much like I'm sure in Chess Alpha Zero, kind of people take away a few things where, um, oh, this is a good idea. Let's look into it. Yeah, where like Alpha Zero showed that in fact the Berlin actually is a good opening, <laughs> rats. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but seriously, yeah, I think I I read an in- you did a lot of mainstream interviews after you played this Pluribus challenge, and you mentioned the mixing about how difficult that is for humans. But then you also mentioned that there were some things that you felt vindicated that 
you had been doing right all along. It was kind of nice to see the solver come to the same conclusion. What are some examples of that? I would say three betting from the big blind um, with like a linear strategy, definitely using these. um, Like if you ever opened late position, it would three bet you from the big blind with king, queen suited, queen, jack suited, all these suited broadways almost every time kind of with with high frequency. And that's kind of something that has become a part of the, uh, I don't want to say high stakes scene, but the tournament scene uh, in the last couple of years where in the, in the past, I think people were playing more polar from the big blind and they were, they were three betting really good hands and really bad hands and, and um, calling a lot of these Jack 10 suited and stuff to see you open under the gun, six handed and pluribus three bet you with Jack 10 suited from the big blind kind of like confirms that that's a, that's a viable play and, and pluribus thinks it's good. Is that because most, um, partly because most humans might be afraid to um, like flat a four bet, whereas, you know, AI is just not scared of doing that if they have the right equities. I think that's part of it. Yeah. There, there's, I think in the bots game, there, there's less four betting than, um, than most people would imagine. It, it, it mostly calls three bets, but I think a big part of it is um, trying to fold out some of those unsuited combos that dominate you, mm-hmm. where um, if you can kind of pick where, where the guy's opening from and kind of the, the lowest unsuited combos he's opening, maybe you can pick that card and start three betting the, uh, the suited combos to, to fold out those. Like it, You don't really want to be calling the three bet with King Jack offsuit there. King 10 offsuit. Um, So if you can fold out those types of hands, your hand's going to play a lot better. When you were playing these five pluribuses, um, pluribusi, uh, (laughs) would they auto, it would be like playing Zoom or something, right? Like if you folded a hand, you'd immediately get a new hand. No, no, it wasn't like that at all. The the software was was pretty slow and you would have to, I would sit there and watch it stack itself every hand, not every hand, but I would watch it play itself. And then when it was over, you click next hand. Oh, so you were watching it play itself. Okay, that, in a way, I feel like that might be good because it seems like it would be really exhausting to just play like, you know, so many hands and it would essentially be heads up if, if it was auto-folded. Yeah. yeah, I guess the software changed at some points where at some point you could just click next hand and go to the next one. But um, it was it was definitely like a there was a curve to the software where at first it was really tough. And then when we, when we did started the uh, five humans experiment, Every human would have to click next hand before we went to the next hand. So, like, if someone was like AFK for a minute, everyone's sitting there, and it, it was really slow at first. But they kind of troubleshooted and, and got through it. Although I didn't play many hands at all in in the human format. Why was that? Were you just? I think just the timing, the way it worked. I, I think it was kind of in June during the World Series, and I um I had enough live poker on my plate that, and I, I had already played ten thousand, twenty thousand hands against the bot that I kind of had my fill. Right, understood. And um, so what was it like after a, se- a session with the AI? Was your head kind of like spinning or? It was a little demoralizing when you get when you get beat by Pluribus in a, in a long session. Interestingly enough, I actually won. I won a lot of BBs in chips. In, in, um, if we were playing for money, I would have won a lot. But it's only in their um, analysis and their, they have this AI VAT like formula they use where it extrapolates from his frequencies um how much you actually win so when you play five thousand hands they put it into this equation as if you played fifty thousand hands and it gives you an accurate win rate in their eyes um so it wasn't until we actually got this last number that i would see oh i'm losing three big blinds per hundred or something when uh in the actual results it may look like i was winning 20 big blinds or something like that so they kind of have this magic formula that spits out a number interesting did you feel like it was fair 
I'm not sure. It's really I'm not um, an expert on that. Like if you click, if you look into the the equation, it's it's all over my head, and it's I, I can't really understand the the math behind it. I wouldn't say it's necessarily accurate, but I wouldn't say it's inaccurate either. I guess I'm not I'm not enough of an expert to say. Yeah, it just reminds me of like stats when you know there's obviously a larger purpose to this. If there's like multiple ways to win, that's always good for the stats that you're trying to present. Yeah, definitely. It is a little. Um, scary that the team does have a incentive for their bot to win the guys holding the formula have a bias and, and they would like pluribus to win so that part of it um i don't like but who knows yeah i mean it's just i guess it's just the way it is when they're putting so much money into this research they're trying to get the probably the correct answers but it's also interesting because it kind of like is an interesting way to think about a hooker tournament that you can win by either playing really really well or by doing <laughs> well in the tournament the uh results don't necessarily follow the process Normally, we think of it the other way, that it's like all, all the negative things that can happen in a poker tournament. But here it's like Pluribus like wins either by crushing everyone or <laughs> by... <laughs> or it made a low frequency play and we're going to discount it because it didn't, it didn't work or something like that. So I think that's part of the equation. So it, it's definitely interesting how they calculate that. Yeah, fascinating. Now, if you had to enter Pluribus into a WPT and you were allowed to make a couple tweaks to the program, like what would you do to give it the best chances to thrive in that field that you obviously know so well having, you know, holding the record for the most number of WPT titles? I think I would have it bluff less, I, w- I would say. Um, a lot of these these multi-street bluffs wouldn't really be necessary, I guess I would say, on the World Poker Tour, where um, you, you have a lot of weaker players and um, playing more snug could be beneficial, where you, I think Pluribus would be, would be taking some unnecessary risks um in a very soft tournament where i think and two players would adapt eventually to see that this player is playing very aggressive and putting a lot of pressure on turns and rivers it would be very tough to play against as is but i don't i think it would make more money by kind of bluffing less you mean like those big street bluffs like the ones that um the multi-barrels like the ones that this hand came from ace eight suited yeah a, a lot like this hand where um I would expect it to get called by Ace Eight in a in a WPT event um, at a high frequency. But one thing too is it would struggle not being able to adapt to the different players, which is kind of um, I'd say one of my strengths on, on those in those types of tournaments is understanding my opponents, the psychology, what they're capable of, what they're not capable of, uh, those kind of things, which Pluribus obviously wouldn't have any of. Right. So what about preflop? What would you change to its preflop formula? Like say you know after the entry the re-entry is over i wouldn't change too much preflop because it play, it plays very well um maybe slightly looser calling ranges we didn't play many limp pots so i don't really know how it reacts to limps and and what it does um it didn't really open limp much so um in in these wpts sometimes you get these multi-way limp pots that you want to be involved in so i i would hope it would um it would limp wide in those spots, although I don't really know because we didn't we didn't limp that much. Either limp or over limp or isolate, right? Like get in there somehow. Yeah, it's it's good to be in um, those pots because usually it's the weaker players limping, and you're playing um, very high stacked pot ratio against weak players uh, in position. So over limping in those types of spots is uh, something that I'm probably doing a lot more than pluribus, I would guess. So suppose there's like three weaker players in a WPT and you're sitting there in the button, like what percentage of hands and they all limped, um, you know, say like under the gun, hijack cutoff, you're in the button. Like how much percentage are you like, 
ISOing or, or like, you know, how much are you VPIPing there, getting in there? Probably pretty high. I would guess um, something similar to like a, a button open range, maybe. Um, I mean, there, it's, it's a different set of hands. I don't want to be in there with like king seven offsuit or something. But I might limp behind with a 6-8 offsuit or 5-6 offsuit or, or something like that um, where I could make a straight or two pair or something like that on a low board. I think probably 40%, I guess, would be the, the answer. 30 40% somewhere in there. I might, um, if the stacks are deep enough and the players are weak enough, it, it might go that high. Yeah, that's definitely probably um, a lot higher than what uh, you can imagine an AI would do. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's PSL approved, but that's um, something that, can definitely pay off big in those spots against weak players. And don't worry, guys. Pluribus is not playing in any live MTTs. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that was not part of the world life, real life world applications that Facebook and Carnegie Mellon had in mind. <laughs> they had that AI Watson on Jeopardy once. I remember that. Um, I, wonder if, I wonder if we'll ever see one of those situations with poker. I mean, I, I think that would be unpopular to say the least. But um, <laughs> yeah. speaking of which, you know, I've thought about this before and it's kind of hard to think of, but... When you talk about mixed strategies and how Pluribus really mastered that art, and there is this idea that Pluribus will be used for other applications, what do you think is a real life application of mixed strategies that doesn't pertain to like, you know, finance or poker? Well, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that. I think the heads up bot that they built last, which was Labratus or something, ended up getting sold to the military. So kind of military tactics, I guess, where mixed strategies are used. I'm trying to think in real life day-to-day stuff. I'd have to think about that a little bit. Yeah, maybe some fitness type stuff. Fitness? Because it seems like people are very successful in like dieting and exercising when they are more when they have more mixed strategies. Like doing different types of fitness on different days, that kind of thing. Yeah, and like randomizing it. It's a difficult question because usually poker concepts like kind of relate to life pretty simply. But something yeah. like a mixed strategy, to me, it seems so specific to poker. Yeah, I can't really think of a good example of something in life. Like fitness is a good idea where I know like shocking your body and changing things up can get better results with working out. But yeah, I don't really, I'd I'd have to think about that one for a little bit because usually there's not really many spots in life where I go, oh, I'm going to do this 60% of the time and and not do it 40% of the time, I guess. Maybe like going out or like having a drink, like some nights I drink, some nights I don't drink. I'm naturally mixing that, I guess. (laughs) That would be my example, I guess. How high do you have to roll to not get a drink? <laughs> uh, not super high, I guess. Probably probably around 50, I'd say. All right, gotcha. I saw that you majored in creative writing in college. Do you still have plans to write a novel featuring a poker player? Tough to say. I mean, I, I do. I have, um, I'd say, half of a novel on a computer that I wrote in college about um, not necessarily a poker player, but a, a card player, uh, a kid who kind of grows up in a seedy environment, plays... Um, plays in underground clubs, plays cards, but um, different types of games, not not necessarily poker, and then eventually gets into poker. I would like to revisit it at some point, or at least write something, um, probably fiction. I, I don't have much interest in writing nonfiction, but um, right now I'm still so into poker and uh, raising my daughter with a family that I haven't really revisited writing in almost 10 years. But you think you'll come back to it at some point? I think so, maybe in my older years, I'll kind of take some time and, uh, and go back to it. Because I, I do enjoy reading. I do enjoy writing. So it is something I like to do. Um, what was the best book you recently read? Let's see here. I read, um, I read a lot of like fiction, fantasy, sci-fi type books. Um, I really liked Name of the Wind. There's like a 
th- it's a three-part series. Two of the books are out. So Name of the Wind and um, Wise Man's Fear, probably the, the best books I've read recently. Oh, I love that. I should check those out or some of our listeners should. I really like those answers, though, because I find that in poker, the optimization type books are just so incredibly popular and it's just nice mm-hmm. to get a fresh answer. I'm not I, I'm not reading like the self help type of books that uh, I think a lot of these people read. I, I don't really have never really gone down that rabbit hole. I mean, they're really good. I mean, it is a trend I think in writing the last fifteen years that those books, like ever since Malcolm Gladwell, that those books are really given a kind of literary treatment and they're super easy to read. But it's a bit much for every poker player to be reading like the same ten books. I know. I did read um, the Art of Learning by. Uh, Josh, he's a, he's a chess player. Josh Whiteskin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did find that one interesting. That's probably one of the few ones um, that I have read that I got some takeaways where uh, he's kind of making um, cross-discipline relations between like martial arts, chess, and a lot of those things resonated with me about poker. So that, that was interesting. Yeah, I remember reading that book. And of course, I knew Josh back in the day. And I think he's doing really well now. He's very successful, man. Um, he's so successful that he's totally under the radar. <laughs> like <laughs> that's the dream. Yeah, winning, winning quietly, as we say in poker, right? Yeah. What resonated with me with that book is I think a lot of his ideas about kind of making sure that you love the training process and not forcing yourself to do things that you hate. And um, as you reach greatness or whatever in your craft and your discipline, you'll find that everybody is very, very good and kind of, I think he says, guiding the battle to areas where you might be a little stronger. And that, that's something that um, is definitely true in poker, where some players are very good in certain situations and a little weaker in others. And kind of like knowing your strengths, knowing their strengths, and kind of guiding the hand towards somewhere where you feel like you have an edge. That reminds me of, uh, I had Dan DeVoris on the grid recently, and you know, he, he talking about the, the mystery and the puzzle of like poker, how you can interpret it either way, either as a puzzle to be solved or as a mystery that you're trying to drag your opponent into. Yeah, and there's always, I think like there's always this debate of like GTO versus exploitative play, and it's always it's always going to be both. And I, I think the best GTO players in the world play more exploitively than people think, and the best exploitative players play more GTO than, than people think, where it's not like one or the other, and these, these top players, they're not pure robots, where they, they do have tendencies and they, they do do certain things for, that a solver wouldn't do. Um, so kind of like appreciating that and recognizing that is important, I think. Now, um, in 1997, Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue for the first time, even though it was a little premature. Deep Blue got a little lucky. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) low frequency play by Gary in game six. But that said, of course, since then, chess engines have gotten incredibly good, especially most recently with the um, AlphaZero. And yeah, chess is actually still more popular than it ever was in 2020, despite all those leaps in AI. Do you see any positives or silver linings here for poker with the AI and its prevalence? It is positive in like a romantic sense of the game where we get to see it played in the best possible version. Like like that's appealing to me. I, I do like that in that sense. But I think it is um, negative and a bit dark for online poker in the future. Because as these AIs get stronger and more readily available... Like, I, I don't believe Peel Solver is the end version of solvers. Like, it's going to get easier, faster. There's going to be different versions. So as these, as more people have these and they're able to use them in real time playing online poker, it's going to be pretty hard to, to play online poker and feel comfortable that you're just playing another human, which um, is a little scary. Right. And of course, you're not allowed to do that. But you figure people will find some workarounds if, if, the, if the programs are more um, user-friendly or easier to adapt. 
Yeah, I'm not really willing to trust uh, poker players for money to do what they're supposed to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's a little um, concerning, and I, I think right now the limitations are kind of tournaments are fairly safe because there's so many variables where an AI has a hard time dealing with this guy has 15 big blinds, this guy has 25, this guy has 100, um, full table, multi-way pots. It, it struggles a little bit with that type of situation where something like heads-up sit-and-goes or one-on-one with the same parameters every game is very easy for an AI to solve. So kind of eventually, I believe, it'll if people put the money and the work in, it, it will it will get to that point where it can it can solve anything. We'll see if they're interested in that. Yeah. Just to change the subject from from, from bots killing online poker. <laughs> Let's take some listener questions. Uh, well, you did touch on this already, but it never hurts to ask again. We have Jonathan Little, of course, an incredibly successful poker player and content creator who asks, what's a common exploit that you've used against WPT regs that have allowed you to crush them so badly? I guess knowing knowing and understanding them where um, I've, I'm able to kind of make some easy, trivial folds in, in, in tough spots where, um, like say a WPT rig check raises me on the river deep in a WPT, I'm kind of able to understand what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. And it's actually happened to me twice kind of recently where I've been value betting on the river, three bet pot, big pot, and I get raised by a incapable reg in my opinion who, who's always has me beat and I, i'm able to make a very quick and easy fold in a spot where if i was playing a world-class player who's capable of bluffing i would have a very tough decision and it would be a nightmare but against some of these wpt regs who don't really take these spots and they don't take them in the spots where all the money's on the line you can really make some exploitative folds against these type of types of players Right, right. So and you don't even feel bad about it after it's not like it causes you to lose sleep or something like that. Oh, absolutely not. I'm usually very sure about these types of decisions. So that's, that's something that just understanding your opponents and that this is a big spot for them. And they don't the way they think they don't really want to blow it. A lot of them money is tight, and they don't make a lot of deep runs. So when they get to one of these spots with like 30 people left and first place is half a million, that they're really, that's not the spot that they're going to take. So understanding that is important. So I have also a question from Vanessa at Viru Poker who asks you, what type of study helps you the most? I'd say um, just going in my own head, sort of like um, using my own brain to pick apart um, hands I've played where I could have gone better, reviewing it, kind of like a self self-review i'm not one of the guys who kind of is in groups and talks about strategy with a lot of people um i probably have one friend that i talk about poker with strategically but um running um hands through my own solver i guess and kind of trying to predict what people would do and how different lines would work i'd say that's probably most helpful to me you have only one friend darren don't worry (laughs) our listeners you can apply (laughs) i want no more friends to talk poker strategy with hand histories no thank you i'm all set You've got Pluribus. Wait, did, when you said your own solver, did you mean Pile or did you mean like your brain? I mean, I just mean my brain, my internal solver, if you will. Yeah, right. So you're just kind of like um, mapping it out. Are you writing these things down when you study too or is it mostly just in your head? Occasionally I'll write something down if I need to um, kind of work through like combos and things like that. But most of the time it's just um, me in my own head and uh, a spectator it would look like I'm just spacing out, but I'm kind of trying to navigate through these lines of the hand. So related to this um, question by Vanessa, about four years ago, we and I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, we had this 
sit-and-go that was like modeled after this TV poker format that I was going to play, the shark cage. And my friend Jamie Kurtzetter was there as well. And there were a few other poker players um, in the area. And you were there as well, too. And at some point it came up as the table got shorthanded. It came up like push-fold ranges. And you revealed that you had never looked at a push-fold chart in your life. Tell us about that, because obviously you still you know, knew the correct ranges. Was it just that you have so much experience that you just kind of inherently knew them? Yeah, I guess it's um, from playing so much and understanding the spots that um, intuitively I was able to kind of create my own push-fold chart that would be very similar to what people are studying. And um, since then, I mean, I have looked looked at positions and stacks and all this, but still, generally, my my instinct, my intuition is going to be very close to what these charts look like. I guess that just comes from experience. I mean, I can't, I can't really explain it because I didn't. I'm not one of those guys who played millions and millions of online hands. I wasn't like a, a high volume guy, but um, I did feel like I had a good grasp on what hands I should go all in with, for what amount of chips, from what position, what hands I should call with. Um, I, I've always felt like I have a pretty good grasp on that. Yeah, it's really interesting though that one of the best players in the world wouldn't have that, and I wonder if there's almost some relationship that. You know, not having a lot of anxiety over those things allows you to think about other things. I mean, there's this this range of of uh, personalities and study process for for players who are very good. Like some are more natural and kind of try to figure things out on their own. Others use a lot of aids and solvers and uh, that kind of thing. And I guess I'm I've always been on more of the natural try to figure it out side of things. And um, that's served me well for most of my career, but as um, as I play more of these high roller tournaments, these hundred Ks and these bigger ones, that um, I kind of need to respect the other side of the uh, of the business too, and, and look into kind of figuring out these mixed strategies and this pluribus type of stuff. Do you have Snapshot on your phone? No, I do not. All right, well, you know what it is though. So I do know that's that. Yeah, it's a pre flop shoving app, right? Yeah. And I, I just find it funny because sometimes you do see people looking at it in a tournament. And to me, it's funny because your actual um, ranges that you probably kind of um, instinctually know are probably going to be good enough that it's not worth revealing to the whole table that you're looking at. This. Yeah. I feel like I want to be playing against the guy who's studying charts in real time. <laughs> like I feel like that's a, a opponent I'd like to play against. So what, what type of adjustments do you have to make, actually, when playing super high rollers? That's actually a question from Vlad. I guess playing more fundamentally sound and um, closer to like a, a game theory optimal type of strategy because there's really not much to exploit in these players. Um, all these guys are kind of naturally very good players like Stephen Chidwick, Sam Greenwood. These guys were, were winning and the best players in the world before solvers even existed. And now they're um, now they're studying, working hard and um, have even gotten better. So it's not like these guys are just... Um, uplifted by these solvers and they weren't good before these guys are great natural thinkers too so it's um it's very challenging kind of understanding trying to understand what they're doing and and how these mixed strategies work is the biggest challenge i'd say but you don't play that many right that's not really my my main focus um i have i played a couple last year i probably play two or three events a year but it is important to me. I do want to be able to compete and feel like I'm winning in these events. And it, it is a goal to, to win one of these things. So that is still on my mind, although 95% of my tournaments are probably 5K to 25K, you know. And um, how challenging is it to execute in 30 seconds or less? 
Oh, very tough. That, that's something I, I struggled with um, in high rollers initially is dealing with the shot clock, where I do pretty well versus weaker players with the shot clock. doesn't really bother me. In the tougher um, tougher decisions versus very good players, the clock becomes more of an issue for me. And um, that's definitely something that I'm sure if I studied more would become easier. I have no one to blame but myself for that. But uh, the clock is definitely an issue in those big tournaments. Got it. And then we, we also have a question from Mike Shaw, the uh, kinder things, who asks how your life and poker career have changed since becoming a dad. Wow. I mean, being a dad is just the best. It's uh, the biggest thing, I guess. It's constant at home where um, the free time that I had before I was a father is uh, disappearing quickly because my daughter wakes up at 5 or 6 a.m. and just goes all day and is very high energy, um, doesn't take naps and kind of constantly, constantly all over you. So when I'm home, I'm very much like a full time dad. And then um, you kind of get this thing where, oh, I'm going away on a poker trip. It's like because being at home can be a little claustrophobic. I'm sure, you know, with a two year old. And uh, it's kind of like, oh, I'm so happy to, to be free in that last like a day or two. And then, oh, I miss her. I want to go home. So I'm kind of constantly in this um, back and forth pendulum kind of thing where, oh, I want to get away. Oh, I miss her. Where it's, it's uh, every trip seems to be like that. I know that somebody once looked at the GPI list and um, noticed that all of the top players were not dads. And I think you were like the number one of the um, on the GPI list that was a dad. Should that be a distinction? The poker dad of the year? <laughs> Maybe at the GPI awards they can give out one of those. I, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that idea. I have a lot of respect for players who are dads and can still do this and play at an elite level. And um, it's 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 tough because a lot of the best players in the world are just these lone wolf players who travel around and and do whatever they want and have lots of time to study poker and kind of do whatever. Yeah, I just think to the mainstream it would be a pretty funny award, the Poker Dad of the Year. <laughs> Yeah, you have to do Mom of the Year, too, I think. I think Ite would win that a lot of years, wouldn't she? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah but, it, but it would be an interesting competition. Although, I think you have a lot more competition this year, Darren. Like, seems like it's getting a little a little tougher. You've got Nick, Phil, Jeff. Stevie, too, now. Stevie's yeah. up there. <laughs> He's a dad. Um, as the, um, our, our, like, class of players gets older and is their early 30s, mid-30s, I think we're going to see more of this. It's just kind of a question. Do you keep going? Like Stephen Chidwick, like still playing elite level, still playing really high? Or do you kind of, like Jason Mercier's father of two, I think now, and kind of just stepped away and plays once a year? There's two ways to go. And it's kind of uh, interesting to, to navigate that. Like, do you still keep going and keep pushing? Or do you step back, try to be a father and not focus on poker? Well, it's tough because, I mean, the benefits of being a poker player are so immense that when you are home, you get to spend so many hours with her. You know, yeah. so that's like having like a normal job is actually not the you might get to see your child every day, but the raw number of hours might actually be less. Yeah. And, and I kind of like the uh, dichotomy or whatever, where you're home and you have free time with her. And then I get to travel and do something challenging for my mind that I enjoy where um, I need something like that to uh, stimulate my mind to, to keep my sanity kind of. And um, Mike also asked a follow-up question. Is there a certain game you enjoy playing with your daughter? I think he set this one up for me. Now that she's into chess, that one for sure. I would say chess or uh, memory. She really likes memory where you flip over the cards. Is it amazing to see like different aspects of your brain and strategic um, reasoning coming in her? Oh, yeah, definitely. It, it's 
I mean, I don't know what's normal. I haven't spent a ton of time around two-year-olds, so I, I don't know if, if what she's doing is normal or if she's genius. Like, we all have this bias where our kid's like a genius. So um, she does really enjoy games, like, and has a long attention span with games where she'll sit down for an hour and play the same game, which is kind of how I was growing up, where um, I was able to focus on things for a long period of time and uh, it didn't really bother me. It's amazing to see that, and then to see her learn things is really some one of my favorite things in life right now. To see her figure out and adapt and learn is really amazing. Well, yeah, she's almost three, and you told me that she's already setting up the chessboard, but I have to one-up you because my son Fabian is already setting up Fisher random positions. Oh, my God. I can't even do that. Um, yeah, so I guess we have to have a match, like a yearly match or something between Fabian and Cora. Yeah, yeah, for toys. Yeah, for her toys. <laughs> for toys. For those of you who don't play chess, of course, that I was kind of making a joke because um, the in Fisher Random, the pieces are randomly placed, so that actually would be easier for a toddler to do. Uh, okay. Over my head, as you know, my chess knowledge is uh, quite limited. I wouldn't say that, and uh, you know, because we we I used to help you with chess, and you, we played some Fisher Random games as well. Actually, have you gotten more interested in games like Chess and Go from your all this experience with AI? I've actually never played Go, but I, I really love that AlphaGo documentary. And I, I like the story, kind of, the human versus AI and the pride, the humility involved in, in that kind of thing. That was really interesting to me. Playing chess, I kind of, I go through these cycles of, oh, I want to play a lot and it's fun. And then I kind of like hit my ceiling. I realize I suck and I quit. And then I come back in a, in a year or two. But um, it's something that I don't like, um, like half-assing anything. So, and, and, it, and, and going all in, on chess doesn't seem like uh, doesn't seem like something I can do right now. Well, my prediction is that like in five or six years, you'll be motivated to get much better at chess because you're not going to want Cora to beat you. True. Hopefully she gives five or six years. Wow. She beats me when she's eight. I will be happy about that. Well, there you're revealing that you're actually not that bad at chess. Yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, 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 you're pretty strong for an amateur player who's never played like a U.S. chess event or anything. Oh, thank you, Jen. I think that one of the most useful ways to use chess for the poker players out there is if you're the type of person who tilts, whether it's chess or some other game on your phone, it's really good to have a game that you play that's not for money. Yep, definitely. And there's definitely some cross-discipline stuff with like preparation versus intuition, where like I'm a big fan of Magnus Carlsen and kind of to see him, I watch these things on YouTube where he plays and he always plays these like awful openings and gets into these spots where people are uncomfortable and they have to play intuitively, where he wants to avoid playing these openings that are solved or where people have these preparations ready. He tries to kind of guide it to unfamiliar territory, which I, I find uh, translates to poker a little bit too. I agree. And I feel like the interesting takeaway is that Magnus tries to make the game as long as possible because the more moves that exist in a chess game, the more likely it is that the higher player will win, right? Yeah. So that's kind of an analogous to you know playing deeper stacked poker or trying to make you know, structure your bet sizes so you're not getting it all in really quickly. A lot of people try that for a while with this uh, small ball concept, which maybe isn't as applicable today as the solvers are showing us the big bet sizing. But still, that concept of just making the game take more time, I think, is very applicable to poker as well. Yeah, anytime you're playing against a weaker player, um, the more decision points you get them to, the more likely they'll make a mistake. But you have to weigh that against actually playing the optimal strategy as well. Exactly. Well, Darren, it's been really awesome. I mean, great hand, ace-eight suited. You're really the first person to come on the grid and talk about a hand that was against an AI. Fascinating story. Yeah, happy to be here. This is fun. Any final thoughts on the hand ace-eight suited on the grid? I got bluffed by an AI, and uh, I wasn't afraid to talk about it. <laughs>
And of course, we can find you at Darren Elias on Twitter, but you're not actually looking for new friends. One friend is plenty. Maybe social friends. No poker friends, please. No hand history talk. (laughs) All right. At Darren Elias on Ace 8 Suited. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff.